It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Patsko. We've been waiting for this. We're getting a little bit off of what we've been doing, which is like the one play from last season to tell you about this coming season because there's stuff that actually happened. So this, Gotta Watch the Tape. We're going back to the old format, splitting it in half, and we're breaking down two big free agent signings. We're going to start off with safety John Johnson, led by Ellis, and then we're going to go to defensive end Tack McKinley, led by Scott, and we're going to break down these players with film and numbers. So we're going to have, you know, plays that matter, but we're not going to only focus on the plays because we want to dive in on two of these guys that you guys really care about that we think can help the Browns in 2021. So we'll just jump right to it. We appreciate you guys being part of it. Ellis Williams kicking off with John Johnson. Dive in. i got to watch the tape. Yeah, here we go on the Browns. Really one big free agent signing. Uh, GM Andrew Barry didn't simply sign a safety from what I've seen, what the numbers tell us, they acquired a, a deep center fielder, a stout box defender, a slot corner who can blitz off the edge if need be and an occasional middle linebacker. Like I said, the tape proves that, which we'll get to, but simply looking at his snaps by position numbers, courtesy of PFF show that he had a team high 1,243 snaps for the Los Angeles Rams last year, keep in mind uh, a defense, a top five defense, and depending on what metric you, you, you look at, you can find, you know, top three, one or two finishes for them. Uh, played more snaps than Aaron Donald, more snaps than Jalen Ramsey. Here's his breakdown. Again, remember 1,200 high team snaps, 459 came in the box, 394 came at free safety. 264 came at slot corner, 36 on the D line and five at the wide corner. That wide corner stuff is probably when, you know, they split a, a, a back or a tight end out wide and he stays on them. And man, the D line stuff is interesting. Uh, shows me capable of playing over a wide nine defensive end, like a traditional outside linebacker blitzing off the edge again, 36 snaps, not a lot, but I did, you know, watching the four full games I watched of this young man, um, he has some ability to scream off the edge like that. We're going to focus on the in-the-box stuff, the slot corner play, and the free safety, free safety stuff. Uh, and before we get into these plays, we're going to mash up five plays we're going to talk about. And listeners, I know that may sound scary with this Gotta Watch the Tape crew. I promise this is not going to be a two-and-a-half-hour-long podcast. But like I said, five plays to get through. Before we jump in and discuss those plays, you guys, anything you want to comment on about just what those numbers highlight about his versatility, his ability to play everywhere? Can I just say I cannot suppress my grin? I just ran through Ellis's five plays, and two plays are the plays that I looked at already when they played against Tom Brady, and it makes me feel like a real-life film boy. I did it. (laughs) I broke down film that mattered. I didn't know what I was doing. But it's like I said to Ellis, oh, you did my plays. <laughs> right. <laughs> he played Tom Brady. And it's like, well, wow, this is what Doug LaMaurice does. Anyway, makes me very excited to do it. But Scott, the versatility, I mean, like uh, uh, huge, the versatility, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, um, I wrote when he got signed how he had seven interceptions and in coverage against tight ends. Mary Kay uh, tweeted or she texted me. And she's like, so wait, he only had eight career interceptions. Does that mean? They've almost all come against tight ends. So I went back and looked and like, yeah, it's true. But while doing that, you start to realize how versatile he is because, you know, 
he, he was in zone for some of them. He was out wide in man-to-man coverage for some of them. There was some where he had to close really quick uh, across the field, um, big hits on a couple of them. So it really showed off all the different things you're getting with this, you know, just one player. He does just feels like Ellison Scott, the guy to me who stitches together the rest of the defense, because it's like, okay, if you're going to play three safeties a lot and it's like, well, Ronnie Harrison might do this best and Grant Delpit might do this best. I feel like you could just take John Johnson and be like, all right, he'll fill in every gap. If he needs to do a little more of this because these two guys are better. Fine. If he needs to do a little more of this fine. Like he is sort of like, He's the cement. He's the the grout. He's going to fill in every crack and be pretty good at almost everything. So Ellis, I just, I'm excited for the breakdowns because he's not a one. He's not like all your breakdowns. He's not doing the same thing. Every play he's showing different skill sets, play to play. And that's why I had to show five plays. I originally had three and I was like, wait a second. I got to add this one. And then I was like, Oh nope, I got to add one more. I mean, it, these are literally five completely different plays that encapsulate everything he can do really well. There's one thing at the end that I want to highlight because it builds off a conversation we had on the round table last night, but Doug, that's exactly it. I've said this before, but it's important to say it again. When Brandon Staley, the Rams defensive coordinator a year ago, now Chargers head coach was interviewing for the Los Angeles Rams head coaching job with Sean McVay. He told Sean McVay, his vision for the defense was to build around Aaron Donald, Jalen Ramsey, and John Johnson. It's a pretty elite company to be in. Yeah, because I just think you need that. You need a safety like this in this league right now. I, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going too far with that because there are certain teams that have a guy. I got very stuck on the, the, the Tyron Matthew interception of Baker Mayfield in the, to open the second half of that playoff game. That it was, a, it was some freelancing a little bit. It was instincts. It was film study. It was breaking on the ball. It's the kind of stuff where it's like, okay, well, we're playing defense. But then you put in a special dude who's got a little nose for it and it changes everything. And my gosh, I just, I mean, that, that's not what Carl Joseph and Andrews and Deho and everything. Like, I just wanted a guy like, like that. And Scott, I don't, I mean, like, he's got a little nose for it a little bit. I think within the versatility, he's got a little nose for it that I think, Ellis, you're talking about building around him. He'll fit within the structure of the defense. And then I think have the confidence and the knowledge and the athleticism to then do a little something on his own, too. The Browns have the potential to have two guys that are dangerous in the back of the defense who to do a lot of different things. And you're right. They didn't have that. You know, Grant Delpit, we think, was supposed to have that ability last season. So now you're potentially getting him back and you're adding Johnson, both those guys. I mean, think about Tyron Matthew in the, in the playoffs against the Browns and, and all the things he can do on the field. Now you have guys who are more versatile like that instead of, you know, yeah, Carl Joseph could play free safety and strong safety, but he doesn't have the abilities that these guys have. Anderson Dayhill is a back of the defense, back of the defense kind of guy who misses a ton of tackles. That's not John Johnson. So it's going to be a different, very different looking defense on the back end for the Browns for sure. And it feels like Ellis, they can just be like rolling safeties and different looks. And if they want to disguise some coverage, it's like, all right, well, there's two safeties here right now. And then right at the snap, one of them might roll up into the box, but you don't know which one it's going to be because you're going to have multiple guys who can play in the box, who can play deep, who can roll out into man coverage on a guy. And like, again, it's not just, how do you say this? Johnson is versatile, but I think he's adding to other guys who are versatile. So it increases your versatility. If your versatility is versatile, was that English? Right. So like you're adding guys who all can do multiple things. And then you need a versatile play caller and a play designer in Joe Woods, and he's going to have an opportunity to build upon what he did last year. And, and Doug, exactly what you said with instincts and versatility and freelancing, all three of those things are stuff we're going to see. So should we dive in? Should we get into these five plays? We got a ways to go. Dive baby dive, go deep. Let's do it. So first good play here. And I'm going to uh, make the timestamps available to our listeners. I really encourage, you know, we're asking our video guy to do a lot here. We're going through five plays. So um, far from that, I encourage listeners to go and look at these plays individually and really study them. This first one comes in week 11, fourth quarter at the 158 mark. Uh, it ended this, the game. Uh, I believe this was a Thursday night game. Uh, when Tom Brady put the, the four up and thought he had another down. Um, 
the Rams here are showing too high look. The Bucks are in in a spread uh, eleven personnel. They've got to throw the football. You we have John Johnson down in the slot over uh, what is going to be, I believe, Cameron Brait at the snap. You see the Rams roll down to what really becomes a cover one look. And that's what confuses Brady so much. You start too high and a lot of, you're going to notice the theme in these plays being a confusion of the start of the high look. Brandon Staley really emphasized making a quarterback think post snap. Tom Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback ever because of how he wins pre-snap. And this is a two plays in here of the Bucks. Rams bucks are examples of making Tom Brady think post snap and the Rams win. When you run the tape, John Johnson starts in the slot. And if this was traditional cover four, he wouldn't carry Cameron Bray deep, but he does one safety rolls low. And instead of splitting the safeties where that ball goes, Brady completely sails and it's an interception though. John Johnson really does nothing on that play to be around the football. I really do credit him with that interception because him carrying the tight end there and then rolling the coverage is just an example. One example of the versatility the Browns are going to have in their secondary this year. And I remember people got excited because Jordan Fuller, the rookie from Ohio State, got the pick on this play. It was the yep. second time he picked off Brady in this game. And Jordan Fuller was a good – he was the other safety with John Johnson for the Rams last year. He's a good player as a sixth-round pick. But Johnson forces the play. And it's a combination of he has the speed to run with Brate, and he also has the size that he makes it a hard throw to try to get it over him. And again, Scott, as I was going through a lot of this stuff, it's like I'm trying to picture the Brown safeties of a year ago or, or maybe if Kevin Johnson's, whoever would have wound up in this spot, I can just imagine, all right, if the guy's not quite as athletic, not quite as big, doesn't run with him as well, Brady would have fit this in, right? He would have thrown it a little bit high for Brady to go up and get it. But there's a way that a player could run with the tight end, carry him, but still not be able to make the play. And I think Johnson, being who he is, forces Brady to throw high. And I think last year, Scott, if the Browns defense was executing this play instead of the Rams, I think Brady might have completed it. Yeah, the receiver is probably a little more open there. And, and maybe that high safety ends up biting uh, on the outside. You know, it just the, the communication and all the turnover at safety from game to game last season, um, I think just led to issues with just you know continuity and understanding what guys are going to do and just communication in general. And, and you're right. I think having somebody who can run with a, with a tight end on that play, it is big. And, and like I said, on the, on some of those interceptions, I, you, you saw that, I think it was against the Raiders. He followed a, uh, or the Seahawks, he followed a, a tight end basically on a, on a fade route into the end zone and, and picked it off. And you need somebody who can run with tight ends. And ideally last season, that was going to be Grant Delpit. The Browns really didn't have that guy last season. And again, as we talked about on the round table, would John Johnson, would you want him running with Jarvis Landry on a play like this? Maybe not. But a tight end, as much as teams flex out tight ends, Ellis, and stuff like this, he's a little bit of a tight end stopper here. And we know from the way the Browns play offense, I mean, there's a lot of teams that want to attack you this way. The Bucks did this to people all the time last year with Rob Gronkowski and Cameron Brate. And John Johnson's a little bit of a tight end stopper at a time when tight ends win games. Yeah, and just think about the division they're playing in. I mean, the Ravens make a killing, literally make a living throwing across the middle of the field, and they've been doing it now the past two seasons to the Browns with Lamar Jackson. It's where he looks. It's where he's most comfortable. And now for the most part, I'm, I'm quite confident the middle of the field is going to be a, a, a lot harder area for Lamar to work to in division, and that's a huge first step into beating the Ravens and getting this AFC North crown that the Browns covet so dearly. There have been a couple games when they played the Ravens where it felt like Mark Andrews could have had 10 touchdown receptions, right? And like, that's, that's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly it. For for Johnson's, for Johnson's career, uh, tight ends have a catch rate of just 52% against him. All the safeties are the top four anyways. Sandejo, Joseph Harrison, red wine last season for the Browns gave up uh, 81.5% catch rate to tight ends. So yeah, you're hoping that his presence is going to help that. <laughs> that's one of the best numbers we've had yeah, on Got to Watch the Tape. That's a number bomb. I mean, that's like, and as I think we can get into, you know, we could do a whole offseason pod of how much do you build your roster for the division? Do you try to counter certain things that people do? John Johnson's going to help him a lot of ways. 
But if Ellis, the point you're making here, I hope people's ears are perking up. You've talked in the past the way that Lamar Johnson, uh, Lamar Jackson has sliced up the Browns in the middle of the field. Like if this plugs that hole, like that's, that's two games a year and maybe a playoff game. Like that's a, we want to go from good to great. We want to be the best team in the division. This feels like it's not the only reason they do it, but there's some direct correlation here. Yeah, there's got to be. And I, I think this it's a good time for me to go to the second play because both of these opening plays I'm going to show you guys and, and hopefully the listeners following along are him, are plays that he makes in the box around the football, close to the line of scrimmage. And whether it's Lamar Jackson throwing across the middle and tearing up the Browns or gashing the Browns up the middle for a run, that is where John Johnson will now patrol most commonly, I think. So let's get to the second play. This is uh, the second good play I want to highlight. It's John Johnson on a shallow versus DK Metcalf comes in the wild card round of the playoffs this year. Second quarter, 13 39 mark. This is a third and seven for the Seahawks from about midfield. Uh, John Johnson, he, he's impossible to miss. He's right in the middle of the field, crosses the Seahawks logo. He essentially is playing middle linebacker here right before the snap. Look at his hands point. The communication never stops. We've said it a zillion times, but he's the green dot player for the Rams had the radio and the helmet making all the calls. This is honest. I think my favorite rep of him that I found where when we start the play and Russell starts to drop back, notice his initial steps, his initial drops are deep into the sideline. That's because essentially what we're seeing here is a cover three look and Russell Wilson, because he's a smaller quarterback, can't see the deep corner open up that would have hit there. The flat safety rolls down and takes the flat so quickly that when he gets to about the 50 yard line to take the running back out in the slot, John Johnson notices that gets eyes on the quarterback. Another thing I want listeners to know about what John Johnson has been taught is to always get eyes on the quarterback because their eyes tell you where the ball's going. Now that sounds like a way to get easily deceived. Like, Oh, he's going to get looked off a lot. Not when you're just as cerebral as the quarterbacks doing the looking off. Johnson knows that when, when he does make a decision on the quarterback's eyes, he's usually right. And that is just something at safety that is innate and in a way God given. And John Johnson has it as he works back to Russ's eyes. He notices a crossing DK Metcalf who is open. He's wide open until John Johnson makes a decision. Russell Wilson releases the ball. Johnson drives and he lights him up. John Johnson is six foot tall, about 200 pounds. DK is six, four two thirty. And if you go to the tight view, I love the tight view. You see him get rocked. And then John Johnson stands up with a flex. It is a heck of a play. It's the type of pro bowl, all pro play that the Brown secondary has dearly missed. It, I mean, for Scott can speak better to it, but for as long as I can remember. So there's a, another play coming up where he drives on the ball. And I, and I want to delve deeper on that, but the green dot thing for people who don't exactly know what you're talking about, what does that mean? And who had the green dot for the Browns last year? And by, by people who don't know what you're talking about, I, I mean, me. So, so I mean, I, I just want to, I, I want to help our listeners. Uh, yeah, but, you're doing it for the listeners. Me. Doing it for the listeners. Um, I, I'm pretty sure it was BJ Goodson. Right, Scott? Scott? Yeah. So yeah. he, yeah. So BJ Goodson, the middle Jacob linebacker. Phillips for like one game, maybe. For one game. Yep. Yep. So essentially the green dot player is the guy who is the quarterback of the defense. The quarterback on offense has a radio in his helmet. Baker Mayfield, Kevin Stefanski, able to radio in the calls. That communication goes dead I think once 10 seconds on the play clock hit so then you're radio silent but that player is responsible for getting the call from the sideline coach's mouth sideline and then distributing it to his teammates and then making the appropriate checks after that calls initially in it is a huge responsibility and in older football it was the middle linebacker because the run game was so important and really the main thing to stop now as defenses are evolving and the passing game is take come to the forefront we're seeing more defenses trust their really do it all safeties as the green dot guy and at just 25 years old john johnson had that responsibility on the top defense in the league it speaks volumes about his ability and his cerebralness i know in the release when they officially announced the signing kevin stefanski was talking about him being a captain for the rams right as a young captain there scott i mean do we have any doubt he's gonna wear he's gonna be the dot 
for the Browns. And then if that's the case, like, is he also helping to replace BJ Goodson? That if you don't, if you're not going to bring BJ Goodson back and it's like, well, we're going to play Jacob Phillips more. Maybe we're going to draft a linebacker. Who's going to be the green dot. It's like, Oh no, this guy's got it. This young veteran that like adds to this signing. If that's, he's going to have that responsibility as well. Yeah, it makes sense for Joe Woods defense, considering his background in secondary coaching that you would have a safety be that guy. But yeah, if you look at the linebackers, I mean, you, <laughs> Malcolm Smith, uh, I think he has more experience than the rest of the room combined, but he's not a guy who's going to be on the field every down. Uh, BJ Goodson, is, like you said, is not signed. So unless you're going to throw Jacob Phillips into that role, put a second year guy in charge of your defense. I don't know if they're ready for that. It just makes all the sense in the world uh, that, that John Johnson would be that guy here, especially as we've said here, his versatility. He's not simply a guy playing free safety the entire game. He's all over the place. So it makes a lot of sense that he would have control over what people are supposed to do. You expect that to be the case, Ellis? The he'll, he'll have the dot. It, it just makes a lot of sense for what everything, everything Scott just laid out for where defenses are heading and for the reason that when he's been healthy, he doesn't come off the field. I just, I think it makes too much sense. Why not? And, and that really is. I, can I get, I, can I get a little more excited? I mean, I didn't even know what a dot was. I didn't even know what the color green was until right now. I think this guy signed for too cheap. I, I would unsign my contract and demand more. It's like, he's filling like four roles for the Browns because he can play like three different safety spots. And he's also going to behave like the middle linebacker behaved last year. He's 25. He's literally four players and they only got $11 million a year. I got to talk to his agent. Yeah, you know, and that, it speaks to the market inefficiency that we've been really stressing on the roundtable pods that you can pay a pass rusher, which I do think was suppressed this year, like 15, 14 million dollars a year. APY is going to look cheap in a year or two, but still you can pay an edge rusher really to do one thing well and they can make that type of money or you can pay the safeties 14, 13, $12 million a year for them to do four things. Well, it, that, it, clearly that's where the inefficiency lives right now in the NFL free agent market. All right. All you listeners, you're nodding your head along. You're nodding your head and saying, man, I, I liked it at the start, but I, I like it even more. Now I want Ellis to talk about more plays and he'll do that right after this. I got to watch the tape. All right, Ellis keep breaking. Go. Yep. Back to week 11. Doug's favorite play. Second quarter, 10 minute, nine second mark. Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, John Johnson. Quite a trio, right? So the Bucks here, and again, listeners, I hope you're moving along with me here. It just helps to have the tape in front of you. The Rams come out in a too high look as they led the league in two high looks almost. I think it was 83% of the time they had light box, seven defenders, which means you have two high safeties. The Bucks are in an empty backfield, just Tom Brady back there, five wide, well, four wide, one tight end. At the snap, John Johnson bails into deep center field, showing that he also is just a traditional free safety. Like those first two plays show him roaming near the football, being around the line of scrimmage and his nose for just making a play and influencing a quarterback. Here he does the same exact thing, but is playing deep safety. Now I think it's important to point out Playing with Jalen Ramsey really helps. Jalen Ramsey's on the bottom left here, and he is facing uh, Leonard Fournette, a running back, split out wide, running a go. No worries there. It doesn't look like Johnson was too worried about that outside throw to the top. That's a really long throw for any quarterback. Opposite hash to basically a wide receiver running a pretty lazy vertical, getting pinned up against the sideline. Nothing to worry about there. The Rams are doing their thing in this cover three type shell where they've got their two rover defenders underneath right at midfield right at that 10 yard marker but there's a window right there that Tom Brady tries to hit once he recenters right he's looking right double coverage on the deep end he's looking now for Gronk on his his second read you see three defenders go to Chris Godwin there Gronk this should be an easy pitch and catch for Brady and Gronk I mean they they did it in the Super Bowl for, for plenty of times you know this is traditional Brady Gronk but instead you get John Johnson coming from, I mean, 20 yard depth, if not deeper, 20, 24, 25 yard depth driving. And he doesn't drive through Gronk in order to create a pass interference or anything like that. How many times do we see defenders panic? This is Gronk. This is six, seven. This is six, eight, 270. This guy's too big. Drive through him, pass interference, fresh set of downs. 
you can tell he drives, waits a little bit, rolls laterally parallel with Gronk. Once he sees Gronk's hands go up, meaning ball's coming, it's about to hit him in the chest. Johnson makes a wraparound defensive play. That is textbook. You were taught that since middle school, how you defend a pass coming into a receiver's body. And he breaks up a pass versus two Hall of Famers, one who caught two Super two touchdowns in the Super Bowl just now and the other who won the Super Bowl MVP, of course. It's a it's a remarkable rep by John Johnson. And again, an example of why tight ends should be really worried about coming to First Energy Stadium from now on. It's my favorite play. I think that, that he's exactly is down the middle with aggression, but under control. And I guarantee a Brown safety, any Brown safety last year would have done one of two things on this plate, either gotten a pass interference because they would have flown in out of control and ran and tackled Gronk before the ball got there, or they would have been hesitant and they would have gotten there after he caught it and then been trying to drag him down and probably would have missed the tackle. And he runs the, the, the Scott, when he gets to the top of his drop and then sees what he sees and aggressively goes like no hesitation, it's, it's beautiful safety play and you have to have confidence in yourself, right? You have to have confidence in your film study and your athleticism to say it's go time. And I'm going to go take care of this in a way that I just don't think we saw that enough with the Browns. They were all, they were too often a step late last year. This is game changing. Scott, a play like this is game changing to me for this defense. This, this play reminds me of another play he had, which actually resulted in a pick. It was against the bills last season. Uh, Tyler Croft was uh, run, he was on the outside uh, running a deep route and Johnson was, was in the middle again. He was technically on the other side of the field outside the hash and Croft was on the opposite sideline and Josh Allen kind of had to, to maneuver in the box a little bit, but by the time the ball got down the field to Croft, Johnson arrived with the ball and basically wrestled it away from Croft uh, as they went to the ground, there was a review and he had, they, you know, getting the interception out of it, but that just being all the way on the other side of the field and recognizing it and then closing, um, you know, it's, again, it's recognition, it's, it's speed. It's, and, and to be able to get there and not just go for the hit, you know, we've seen a lot of guys don't necessarily go for the ball. They'll just try to knock the snot out of somebody, you know, he's there making sure he's physically in front of him, but also, getting his arms around the ball and coming away with a pick. So it was, it really reminds me uh, of that play watching this one here. He just looks like a guy Ellis who is reading everything that happens. And then once he figures it out, he makes a decision and he does something about it. And it's like I, the safeties who either can't diagnose it and make the decision, or even if they figure it out, they're like, well, I don't want to get beat on a double move. Right. And they're hesitant Man, diagnose, decide, and go. This is what this guy is all about. I love it. He reads the field like a quarterback. I'm telling you, he can process and compute just as fast as the signal caller, and he's running routes for the offense. That is the highest compliment you can give a defensive back, whether it's this route, beating Gronk there, or the one I just showed against DK Metcalf. You don't blow a player up like that unless you know exactly where they're going. And only the offensive players – before the snap should know where they're going. John Johnson knows where his opponents are going and he is a disruptor because of it. All right. Next one, he's back in the box and he's physical too. He's physical. Yep. And I'm glad Scott mentioned his ability, the decision to how, how fundamentally sound he is in his ability to just be sound around a football player and not just throwing his body at someone. So this next one uh, comes in the divisional round. It's a, it's a run fit versus Aaron Jones and the Green Bay Packers. It's the first play of the second quarter for anyone trying to find it. Real simple play to diagnose here. The Rams are in, again, a coverage I really can't diagnose. You don't get the opportunity to because it becomes a run play. But that's the flexibility that John Johnson gets you. He has split the difference perfectly between his defensive line and his deepest safety. And then he split the difference again between the level of linebackers and the level the corners are at. I mean – a, a defense really should be t- two levels, your front seven and then your, your drops or y- your front and then your front four and your back seven. Like that's the most simple way to think about a defense. 
I can break this defense into four different layers with Johnson being his own layer altogether. It's, it's remarkable. It's complex. And Joe Woods is going to have a lot of fun this summer designing ways to let Johnson roam and freelance. And this is a great example of that. Imagine this being Nick Chubb or Kareem Hunt who gets the ball here. Better yet, imagine this being Lamar Jackson, because I'm confident that this is a play where, look, could John Johnson get juked by Lamar Jackson? Of course, he's Lamar Jackson. He does it to everybody. But I'm telling you that rather than being reckless and just throwing his body into a play, he goes down and makes a fundamental play here against one of the best running backs in football, a guy who just got paid. Let's run the tape on the snap. It's a simple, quick draw. It's exactly what Green Bay wants. They get their two inside offensive linemen manned on their two backs, their two middle linebackers, and you're one-on-one with the safety. That is every running back's dream. What happens? Just John Johnson snuffing him, pulling him backwards and collapsing him at his hips. It's fundamental football. It's a gain of three, which what should have been a, a gain of six or seven versus a light box. Not only is it a play that wins that rep, it deters offenses from running despite there being a light box. It's a win-win for the defense, both on the play itself and what it builds for your defense over the course of the rest of a football game. Scott, when a team's searching out a versatile safety like this, how important is being able to play the run in that guy's profile? How important is it? Uh, let me bring up the number here. Um, yes, let's see. 2020, Andrew Sandejo, 16 what? missed tackles. Carl Joseph, 10 missed tackles. Um, that's how important it is. <laughs> like it, it's, it's huge. I mean, you, you need guys on the back end of the defense who can tackle. And you're right about the Browns. Imagine the Browns running that because they do. I mean, they – that unbalanced line with the tight ends to the, to the wrong side gets the linebackers out of the way. And if Johnson isn't making a tackle, then it's bounced to the outside. It's a touchdown and you need guys who can do that. And the Browns did not have safeties who can consistently tackle last season. No. And it's an important thing. I mean, you can fall in love with the coverage stuff, but uh, we, and there are guys, there are guys on every team, but we talk about guys in the Browns, some of their linebackers, some of their offensive linemen, like they're really good at one thing and they're really not that good at the other thing. This is not a coverage guy who's going to knock down passes but get smoked in the run game. And, again, that's why it makes so much sense. All right, what's the last play, Ellis? Yep, we're going to skate through this one. Just, I, I just wanted to include it because we talked about it on the roundtable last week. And, uh, you know, we're making this guy sound like the greatest football player ever invented. He is extremely talented, but you do, we can't get too caught up in the fact that he is going to win every single matchup. This next play uh, comes in the same Football game, the divisional round, second quarter, uh, 12 minutes, 23 seconds. So probably on this the same drive, actually. Uh, Green Bay faces a second and six from their uh, from the Rams' six-yard line. Rodgers ends up handing the ball off here. It's a, it's a running play, but the Rams are in man coverage. Uh, I want everyone to watch Alan Lazard, number 13 in the slot. That's John Johnson lined up on him. He's just going to run a, a, a speed out, a simple speed out, but Johnson gets beat. It's a, it's a, it's a fair route. He chops, hesitates about two, three steps into his route, fakes it in on his third step, a hard plant shimmies quick out left flips his head and Johnson's beat. If, if this is a read option play and Rogers decides to throw, that's a touchdown and it's, and it's not a good look for Johnson, but that's football. Sometimes you get beat. The ball didn't go there. You play another down, but this is just an example of why though he can do it all, the Browns do still need to prioritize a slot corner, like Scott said on the round table yesterday. So again, as soon as this happened, it was almost universal praise. It felt like for this signing, both within people who follow the Browns and from a national perspective, I know I won, I read one article that was ranking all the free agent signings. I think gave this a B plus. It just feels like the more you look at it, it's just, it's an a, I think, I think it is when you do it right in situations like this, you line up, team need player position, but also like the individual skills of the player. And, and it's again, I had Anthony Harris as my number one safety that they should get. I want him to get a safety. John Johnson was my next guy in line. But as you start breaking down, not just a good safety, but like his particular skill set that he's going to call the plays that he can cover, that he can play the run, 
that he's aggressive in zone, that he can lock up and man on a tight end. Scott, I just, I, I mean, I'm, we're not going to apologize for it. I think this is a great signing, the kind of signing that helps a playoff team go from in the playoffs to further. This is going to change this defense, Scott. I think this definitely changes the defense more than adding a big time edge rusher. And I, and I know that I'm among the, the people on our staff who thought the Browns would go that direction. I was fooled by Andrew Barry. <laughs> we knew that Olivia Vernon wasn't coming back, coming back. Adrian Claiborne gets released. So I'm zeroing in on edge rusher. Meanwhile, Andrew Barry's thinking about a much more versatile and important position in the back of the defense, which I agree with this, with this move. I think it's great. And yeah, it just it solves a lot of problems and potential problems with one guy, whereas pass rusher, edge rusher is only going to deal with a limited number of, of issues that the Browns have. And, and I just want to mention one play that wasn't in this list, Ellis. It was another one from that Tampa game where he played just a typical deep safety and Tom Brady tried to hit a go route to Mike Evans and John Johnson helped and got to the sideline and should have picked it off. And Mike Evans wound up playing defensive back and knocked it out of his hands. But it's just another example of it. Listen, we're, we're talking about him up, stopping the run, man coverage on a tight end, carrying him through. And then deep safety, he just does what a deep safety is supposed to do, which is help and break up a deep ball. And it was just like he does. Ellis, last word on this for you. He just, he can do it all. Yeah, I think if one if there's an area teams are going to try him, it's going to be trying to get him vertical. I mentioned that four six one speed, but it doesn't matter. I mean, that's that's a forty time. He's faster on the football field, and when you can process faster than anyone on the field, that all of a sudden makes your forty time irrelevant, or you have four five speed because your brain's moving faster than the guy that is running four five or four four. It, it's going to be a blast to watch and to continue to break down tape of him as, as we get into next season. All right, I hope people got excited. I just don't, nobody could dispute it. It's a matter of like your level of excitement, I think. But I think this is a perfect match in a lot of ways in free agency. The next one, I mean, nobody, you can't quite live up to this, but I like the next one too. And that's going to be Scott Pasco diving in on pass rusher Tack McKinley. We'll do that next. I've got to watch the tape. All right, Tack McKinley, 4.25 million. I did a quick calculation. I had 10 of the edge rushers who changed teams. This offseason, making more than that, and that's not talking some of the guys like, you know, Barrett going back to the Bucks for more than that. This is guys who change teams. Like, again, it's clearly second tier, but it's intriguing. Scott Patsko dive in on Tack McKinley on Got to Watch the Tape. All right, so everything, the, the conversation around McKinley is his potential. What's he going to be when he comes here with the Browns? So I thought, let's go back and talk about what he was supposed to be coming out of college first year briefly, because he was drafted the same year as Miles Garrett. Miles went first overall. Uh, McKinley was 26th overall. He was second in the Pac-12 in most pass rushing stats, like sacks, pressures. He was, he was even ahead of Solomon Thomas of Stanford, who went third overall that year. Uh, McKinley led the conference with 25 quarterback hits. I will give you large sums of money <laughs> if you could tell me who led the Pac-12 in sacks and pressures that season, 2016. You're never going to guess it. His, his name was Hunter Dimmick of Utah. He went undrafted. He was oh. on the Jaguars practice squad. He hasn't played since 2019. Never got in a game. But let that be a lesson. College production doesn't always translate to the pros. And he's Pac-12 a perfect production. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, back to McKinley. Scouting reports generally talked about how he had all the tools, you know, to be a good edge rusher, but somebody was going to have to help him develop those. Um, good arm length. He was 6'2", 250 at the combine. Good burst, straight line speed, stuff like that. But the things that you found over and over is that all the wild plays that he would have usually came when he was unblocked. Or more specifically, he wasn't defeating blocks uh, on a consistent basis in one-on-one opportunities. He tested poorly in agility drills like the three-cone in the shuttle. But he still ended up being the fifth of six edge rushers drafted in the first round. Uh, other than Garrett and Thomas, there was Derek Barnett, who's been good for the Eagles. Jonathan Allen, uh, who's been good for Washington. Thomas, though, I think is a is a free agent. He is not. He did not work out for the for the 49ers. Similar to the way McKinley didn't really become what everybody thought he might with the Falcons. Now, Doug, I know you I, you either talked to him or you were there for his interview uh, at the combine. Um, 
I mean, what did you think of McKinley coming out in 2017? Yeah, I, I liked him. Um, I, I have the old sound, so I went back and listened to that. You know, they're all a podium. It's not like I had a one-on-one interview with him, but I was at his podium for the whole time. Very earnest, tough background, dedicated um, his career to his late grandmother, who was so important in his life, was talking about growing up, he'd go down and get ramen noodles for 30 cents for dinner. And like, he always was going to like appreciate ramen noodles because they helped him get through. Like just one of those guys, a little bit of a tough upbringing who really wanted it. I really liked him. And as I, as I wrote in a story that I posted Thursday, if you at all thought it was possible that the Browns weren't going to take Miles Garrett one, that was the year they had the first pick and the 12th pick. If you thought, you know what, the best thing to do is take a quarterback one and then address defense, Tack McKinley was in your conversation. That I said, if you wanted to go, I don't think they would have taken Watson, but they got, if you go Mitch Trubisky or Patrick Mahomes one and Tack McKinley 12, there's maybe a universe where that happens. I'm not saying they should have. Miles Garrett's a great number one pick, but that's why I'm talking to that guy. Because he was in that second group of edge rushers. He's not Miles. But I, I think I like him. And I think it matters because I think it got a little sideways for him so far in his NFL career. But I think he's a good, earnest guy. And that might seem silly. But you got a vibe from him that I think the Browns can help him get back. I don't, I don't know if Browns fans want to live in the universe where Mitch Trubisky went one overall and McKinley went twelve. Oh, well, it should make them feel about all the people who, who get caught up in they could have gone Miles Garrett to Sean Watson and literally had the greatest first round in NFL draft history. Okay, they didn't have that. They also could have gone Trubisky-McKinley. Okay, that's why I'm throwing that out there. I don't think anyone's ever tweeted that. We, someone, someone rushed now. Yeah, that's all yours, Ellis. Go ahead. Yeah, because that's, I mean, that's the draft. I mean, you can act like it's Captain Hindsight. Like, yep, Deshaun Watson – Miles Garrett, greatest draft ever, or it's Trubisky and Tack, and holy smokes. Yeah, but I, I think what they're trying to recapture, right? I mean, like, people like this guy. He is – your agility thing, Scott, you watch Miles Garrett bend and do things on the edge, and he's like a gymnast, and it's like, this guy's not that. So, like, that – he does have some limitations, but I think there's a lot to like. Keep going. So, what does McKinley bring to the pass rush? He's never had a season – as far as overall defensive grade goes, he's never had a season graded above backup level. He's mostly been in the high 60s, but let's focus on the pass rush. He's not a guy who's going to throw a flurry of moves, like you said. He lines up really wide, so he can use his speed either to get around the edge or build up momentum and just bull rush people, which he's had some success with. But his PFF pass rush grades have basically declined each season. He was 70.1 as a rookie, get 39 pressures, 8 sacks, and when I say eight sacks, if you look up sacks on something like Pro Football Reference, I think you might only find seven. PFF doesn't mess around with half sacks. They basically give you credit for getting there. So eight sacks per PFF. Uh, 2018, 66.5 pass rush grade, then 65.5. Then last season, he only played in four games. He had the groin injury. He was at 63.4. But those are just kind of raw counting numbers. PFF also has a stat called pass rush productivity, which we've talked about here before. PRP measures pressures created on a per snap basis. Sacks get more weight. McKinley in 2017 as a rookie, he ranked 33rd among his defenders. His PRP was 7.5. Shaq Barrett, also 7.5 that year. Clowney, 7.4. Miles Garrett, 7.6. So he wasn't too far off. Garrett had about 20 more pass rush snaps than McKinley had that year. Uh, he had basically the same number of pressures and sacks. And there's needs to be context there. I don't have the stat. I don't know who tracks it, but I can always guarantee you that Miles Garrett faced more double teams than, than uh, McKinley did as a rookie. Uh, but, you know, as far as actual end-of-the-day production, the pressures and sacks were basically the same. 2018, McKinley was 20th in PRP, 7.8. Again, Ngakwe is right around there, 8.1. Matthew Juden, who uh, got a new contract this year, 7.7. Carl Lawson was below him. TJ Watt was below him. Uh, 2019, McKinley fell off the board, kind of to 53rd in PRP. But again, he's a tied with an Ngakwe and Clowney. But Dupree tied for 63 that year. Um, for comparison, Garrett, meanwhile, is up near the top of the NFL with Nick Bosa and J.J. Watts of the world. So if you're talking about efficiency on a per-snap basis, McKinley's name shows up with a lot of players who were coveted in free agency this offseason. 
guys who got big contracts. But again, contacts matters because McKinley wasn't on the field as much as most of those other players. If you look at just 2019, he had 277 pass rush snaps in 16 games. Guys like Dupree was over 500. TJ Watt, 480. And Gakwe, 450. So these guys are getting a lot more opportunities and, and kind of have to hold up that rate for a longer amount of time than McKinley has. McKinley was used in 2019 by the Falcons, basically at the same rate that Adrian Claiborne was used by the Browns last season. Claiborne had 289 pass rush snaps. He ended up with 22 pressures, four sacks. Um, Vernon, meanwhile, uh, I think we said he's up over 70%. Garrett up over 70%. So if McKinley comes into a situation where he's the guy and he's getting the bulk of the snaps next to Garrett, it's going to be a new world for him because he's going to be on the field a lot more than he was used to with the Falcons. All right. I dove into this a decent amount too. And I, I, I'm going to go on this because I know Scott, you have some stuff about left and right side with Garrett and some run game stuff, but this is my last take on this. Some of his highest PFF grades came in the games where he played more snaps. I don't think he's going to get worse because he plays more. I think he wants to play more. And when you were, when I was watching his film in 2019, cause I just wiped out 2020. It's funny. Every now and then I got confused because I couldn't exactly tell who it was because he's number 98 and number 99 for the Falcons from 2019 is Adrian Claiborne and Adrian Claiborne looks pretty good on some of these plays. Right. And then Adrian Claiborne did not play at that level with the Browns, but Adrian Claiborne, by the time the Browns got him is starting to go the wrong way. Tack, just in terms of age and length in the league, Tack McKinley's still on the upswing. So they were, I think, similar players with the Falcons in 2019. But I think the issue is there's a bigger chance the Browns get a better version of McKinley than he was in Atlanta, while it was a more likely chance they get a slightly worse version of Claiborne than he was in Atlanta, just based on age, right? So I think that is true. The other thing, and we have to talk about him in terms of value. We are not, he's not getting paid $12 million a year. I would not pay him $12 million a year. I would not sign him to be your number one defensive end. I did a breakdown of him and Trey Hendrickson, their first three years in the league. They came in in the year at the same time. A lot of the, all these edge rushers were in the, a lot of, they're in the 2017 draft. That's why they're all in free agency right now. Trey Hendrickson in New Orleans and Tack McKinley, their first three years in 17, 18, and 19, very similar, but McKinley's numbers are better across the board. Then in 2020, McKinley's on a terrible team. The coach gets fired. Vic Beasley, who had been the best pass rusher in Atlanta, is no longer there. He has a groin injury, and it's a lost year. Trey Hendrickson in 2020 is playing with Cameron Jordan, taking all the heat on a playoff team. He has 14 sacks, and according to PFF, 11 of the 14 sacks are either like cleanup, unblocked, bullcrap sacks. Trey Hendrickson gets paid three times as much money as Tack McKinley in free agency this year. The first three years of their career, Tack McKinley was better. Tack McKinley had a year from heck in 2020. Trey Hendrickson had a bullcrap year as a cleanup guy. And now the, he's a number two who racked up stats as a number two. And the Bengals let Carl Lawson go and paid Hendrickson like a number one. McKinley's a number two, but he had a terrible year. And so the Browns are paying him like a number three almost when I think he's a number two. Like he's the second, he's your second starter, but the other guy has to be your stud. So Hendrickson and McKinley are both number twos. Hendrickson's getting paid like a one. McKinley's getting paid like a three. He had a lost year. He's a try hard guy who wants to be great. And he is going to Miles Garrett pass rush school. He has no moves. Miles Garrett's going to keep te teach him some moves. Miles Garrett can't teach him to bend but he can teach him how to do more than just slam into the tackle and hope that your speed gets you around the edge. He wants to be great. And he got to Atlanta as a rookie and they were coming off the Super Bowl, and they made the playoff his first year. And then they went seven to nine, seven to nine, four and 12. They fired the coach. I think he's that kind of guy. Right. And so you might say, well, I don't want a guy who lives and ebbs and flows with the emotion of wins and losses, except guess what the Browns are going to be now. They're going to be a place for reclamation projects. If Bill Belichick had signed Tack McKinley, people would say he's a genius and the culture of New England is going to change him. Guess what? I think the Browns have the chance to be that kind of franchise, and Tack McKinley is exactly the right guy to sign. I think working with Miles Garrett in practice every day, I think being opposite Miles Garrett on the field 
It's not about him making Miles better. It's about Miles making him better. I think this guy's going to have a better year than Trey Hendrickson for one-third of the money, and I think he's going to have his most productive year. I don't know that he's going to change as a player that much, but I think his production will go up based on the situation, and don't judge him for last year. All he did was get frustrated and tweet, and he hurt his groin. He didn't blow out his Achilles, and he didn't get arrested or something crazy off-field stuff, right? He had a groin and a tweet. A groin and a tweet, that's nothing. They get it fixed bargain huge upside i think he is going to be really productive from them that's my last thing sorry scott to steal all your time <sighs> am i my wrong only, like are you guys pushing back on that like am i my too only push back on the, we, we hear that about everybody who can come and play with miles garrett miles garrett's going to make them better has miles garrett made anybody opposite him better so here's you my argue, go ahead. Well, you could argue that emmanuel ogba olivier vernon if you want to throw Claiborne in there, they have all been better before or after they played with Miles Garrett. I would I would argue that McKinley can get better here. I think it's going to have to do more to do with coaching because it's not like McKinley was getting bogged down by double teams in Atlanta and he's going to come here and Garrett's going to take all that away from him. He he struggled with consistency one on one. So I think it's coaching. The Browns clearly see something there because they they wanted this guy last season. They put in claims for him three different times last season. So clearly they see something that they can maybe coach up or a situation they think he can excel in. I think that'll have more to do with it than just playing opposite Garrett. And I know the playing with good players makes you better, but I still say coaching is going to be the bigger factor. So I'd say my main point on Garrett is not being on the field with him. It's working with him every day. It's a chance for Miles to be a mentor. They're the same age, but like Olivier Vernon, Adrian Claiborne, Emmanuel Agba, Miles was the young guy in those relationships. So if you're talking about them being better, it's just that Miles has taken pressure off of them. I'm talking about day-to-day in the building, Tack McKinley looking at Miles Garrett and saying, I want what he has. I want to be who he is. And that to me is more of it. I think it's a great opportunity I mean, I think they're just—they're going to lift weights together. They're going to run drills together. Tax, you know, like that to me is the thing. And I want that for—I want Miles to be his, his fifth year. This to me is the transition of Miles Garrett from young guy to veteran. It's no longer that you have a bunch of veterans in that. There's still Sheldon Richardson, but like right, Olivier Vernon, Adrian Claiborne. It's a little bit of a little different relationship. They're the same age, but I think this can be maybe not big brother, little brother, but I think Miles can show him the way because I think coming out of the combine. Tack McKinley thought, man, I'm practically as good as Miles Garrett. And for four years, that has clearly not been the case. But that's what he wants. So that's I want, I want Tack around Miles. And that's where I think the greatest difference is going to be. Yeah, we're, we're talking about a guy reinventing himself. And if he's able to do that, like that's what makes this from rookie evaluation that we're doing right now for the 2021 class all the way back to when they started drafting players, that's is the one ingredient that you just can't put a finger on. Who are these young athletes going to mature into as men? Is Tack McKinley going to come to Cleveland, rediscover, re, you know, find his discipline and blossom into that type of edge rusher because the physical tools are there. The moves aren't like you said, but he's going to have an opportunity to do so in a culture like Cleveland now, which I, I think it's remarkable that we can even say that after one year that Cleveland's now a culture that can take in a guy like Tack McKinley. All right. So we've talked on this podcast a lot, Scott, left edge, right edge. Where's miles more comfortable. How's it fit in? How's Tack McKinley fit into that? Yeah, I think that's important uh, with miles. Uh, McKinley is basically, he's in like Olivier Vernon before him and definitely unlike Adrian Claiborne in that he's basically played from both sides, almost equally his career. He's got 51% of his snaps from the left. So 49 from the right. And that's something he also did in college. He had 32 pressures from the right, 24 from the left. So it's something he's used to. And like we've gone over before that matters with the Browns because they've really turned Garrett into a guy. They move all over the place. He was anchored to the right his first couple of years. And last season, he actually had more pass rush snaps from the left through first 10 games than he had from the right. And over the last two years, it's really been more of a balance. Um, Vernon, that was kind of a chore for him to try to become that guy. And he didn't really become someone who excelled from both sides. Um, and Claiborne, definitely. He 
I think he's had 63, yeah, 63 snaps from the left over five seasons. So it's not something he does. But uh, according to PF McKinley, 13 sacks from the left, seven from the right in his career. His PRP from the left in his second season was 9.5. And that's on 132 pass rushes. So there wasn't, uh, it was a legitimate sample size. 21 pressures, four sacks. That 9.5 ranks sixth among edge defenders with at least 100 snaps from the left. So he was, you know, he was one of the best at it that year. But that's the only season that McKinley had more success from the left than the right. Uh, he is like Garrett. He's still always going to be a little better from the right, but he has shown that he can do it. And he has clearly the ability to rush from both sides. I mean, if you watch any game on him, it, you're going to see him on both sides of the line. So that's something I think probably mattered to the Browns and who they brought in here. They didn't want to get a guy who was just tied to one side because like we've said before, I mean, earlier this offseason, we showed Miles Garrett at like right, left defensive tackle. They just want to move him around and, and get the most out of him. So really you think that, I mean, obviously they have even deeper numbers than we have when they're evaluating this edge rusher class. That's one of the main things they're looking for because they, they don't want to, they don't want to sign a guy for big money and then you're going to be moving him around to fit with miles when the guy's never done it before that versatility you think was a factor. I think so. I mean, just think of the way pass rushing has evolved, I guess, over the last, however many years where most of the top guys are coming from the left now. I mean, TJ Watt, he's over on the left. Um, and I think the more versatility you have at that position is just like any position. I mean, we spent half hour talking about John Johnson and all the different things he can do. Uh, if he was just a guy at the back of the defense, he wouldn't be so valuable. Uh, it's the same thing with, with Miles Garrett. You want a guy who can move around. And if he's someone you're moving around, well, then the guy on the other side is going to have to be able to do the same thing. You know, you're not always going to stack two guys on one side. Although we'd like to see that <laughs> we'd like to see miles at, at, at tackle and, and maybe uh, McKinley on the outside uh, occasionally, but yeah, you got to have versatility there because it just makes you a better defense. All right. Then when we usually talk about these guys, we usually talk about pass rushing for 90% of the time and playing the run for 10% of the time. Ellis in general, how did you think the Browns Vernon Claiborne specifically, were they decent against the run last year? Or is that an issue where they need that, that other defensive end to play better against the run? Uh, off the top of my head, remember, like looking at the tape, I I think that Vernon was relatively steady against the run. He has the type of frame that allows you to set an edge, uh, can give you two-way goes to funnel players back inside. Uh, and, and later in the season, like Vernon sack numbers, I just think his overall production picked up uh, once Miles left due to COVID and then he sustained it up until his injury. I wasn't really impressed with Adrian Claiborne really all season long. And I think the Browns agreed in, in cutting him. I'm curious to see how McKinley plays against the run, but for Vernon specifically, I think they were getting good, at least production from that one spot. But again, it wasn't um, enough to be a, a every down type of production and definitely not 16 games worth. So how is tack Scott? Is he decent against the run or no? Well, that's the thing. He, uh, <laughs> There's a lot to be determined with that because uh, you remember BJ Goodson and how he became a full-time starter last season and was put in a lot of situations he hadn't been in, especially in coverage. That could be McKinley in 2021 if he's your guy on the edge. Uh, if you compare him to his edge rushing peers, you're going to find that he hasn't gotten the amount of snaps against the run that those players have got. 33% of his snaps have come against the run. When he was a rookie, he had 250 pass rush snaps. He was the only one of four guys who had that many against the pass uh, and had like less than 115 against the run. He just, they, they don't put him in those positions. He was one of just three edge rushers uh, two years ago with at least 400 pass rush snaps and less than 200 against the runs. So in other words, he just hasn't been a consistent three down edge rusher in the NFL. Uh, he played 38% of the Falcons snaps as a rookie 57 and 53% the next two years. And like I said before, Garrett and Vernon both topped out at 70% last season. It was Claiborne. He was the one who was around 30, 35%. Garrett and Vernon were both good against the run. They were both in the top five, if you want to go by PFF grade. Last season, 69 and, and 70 in that range. McKinley's PFF grade versus the run was 69.7 in four games last season. That was the highest of his career. He was at 63 in 2019. 
his tackle grades have been, been at near uh, or below replacement level each season. So the question becomes, will he become a liability in the run game with a larger workload? Or was his performance last season in four games a signal that maybe he's finally, you know, finding his footing against the run? Uh, going into free agency, one of the scouting reports I read on McKinley said that he has the skills to be effective against the run, but there were too many blown gaps, missed tackles through the years. You know, the Browns didn't just decide, like I said, on McKinley a few days ago, they wanted him for a while. So they know what he is and, and what they have to work with. So that tells me they think they, like I said, have the coaches who can get the most out of his abilities. And I would assume that that includes making him what they want him to be on the edge against the run. Um, but there is definitely room for improvement uh, in that area. It is. I mean, you don't draft the guy in the first round and think, well, he, he only can play on passing downs, right? I mean, like that. And again, you can't, you can't get too hooked to the college evaluation that's now five years old, Ellis. But I, I think it makes sense to like, let's see, right? I mean, he's not tiny, I know as, as, as I think you mentioned, maybe on the round table, Ellis, it's like, you can't figure out what this guy's weight actually is, but he's not one of those like long lean, like that, like there, well, there's no chance he can hold up against the run because he's just a speed edge rusher. I don't think he's that. So I don't know. I mean, it seems like maybe he has a chance to, to do it. Right. Yeah. He's not Hassan Reddick, uh, Hassan Reddick, six feet tall, you know, two fifteen probably McKinley's going to play, you know, his six, two height is universally accepted. He'll play somewhere between two forty and two sixty from, basically what I'm gathering watching the tape from this past season. I think Scott's on something. I think he, I noticed some more edge discipline. I noticed some, his um, willingness to take the run more seriously the, where he, where I was disappointed in his run defense was in 2019, 2018, stuff like that. So I think there's definite promise there. He's I'm, I'm not all that. I'm not too worried about his size and ability to hold up on the edge there. Uh, it's just the consistency to do it. Game in and game out, rep in and rep out, and for 16 games, we'll see. All right, so let's get off the numbers real quick here as we wrap this up. Um, we've been talking about this again. I know you guys have been listening to our Browns roundtable uh, every night of free agency week here, where the three of us join Dan Lobby and Mary Kay Cabot, and we just sort of talk about the news of the day. Do you think, Scott, we'll start with you, what else is going to happen at this position at edge rusher? Do you think that they will hang out and see what else happens? There are some still names out there in free agency. Do you think they will dedicate themselves and definitely take an edge rusher, you know, in the top three rounds in this draft that, you know, if we said a year ago, okay, well, it's Garrett and Vernon and then Claiborne's the third at the moment, it would be what Garrett and McKinley and Porter Gustin's the third. Like, do you think there will be another name by the time we get to the season that it's Garrett and McKinley and a different third guy, or maybe even Garrett and blank and McKinley's the third guy. What's your just quick prediction on how you think it might go? I would be surprised if they bring in anybody else. Who's the guy pushing McKinley down to the third guy. I think he's the second guy right now and that they could very well sign someone else, but it would be surprising to me that he would leapfrog McKinley I think drafting somebody is definitely in play, but beyond all that, the Browns are going to get better in the secondary. They're going to get better in coverage. They, they got a, a great safety now and they have more, uh, more potential to do more things with multiple safeties. Now Greedy Williams gives them the ability to, you would think improve a cornerback. Um, they're probably going to draft in that position too. So I think the Browns are going to get better in the secondary, which is in turn, obviously is going to help, help their pass rush. And I think that's probably the direction you're going to see them go that solidifying that back seven and making sure that they can get the job done in coverage is going to make McKinley. They hope I'm sure better than, than what he has been. I don't, he's the guy, I think he's the number two guy, unless they draft a rookie and he comes in and wows everybody and takes that spot. It, it, I would assume it has to be McKinley. Yeah, my guess, and I think maybe, Scott, you're the one who sort of mentioned this, of like you really maybe just start thinking it's going to be draft-related to help solve this. I just I don't know that it'll be the first-round guy. It feels like there are going to be some edge rushers at the back of the first round. Maybe they go that way. But I think they almost have – they have, what, two, two third-round picks, right, Scott? I mean, yeah. I think one of their first four picks almost has to be an edge rusher that they plan to be 
somewhat involved. And I think that will happen. Maybe second or third round, I would guess they take the edge rusher who becomes the third guy and then Gustin's fourth. Ellis, how do you think it shakes out? Yeah, I think I'd be surprised if anyone is brought in before the draft. There's only one name that I think would make sense and it'd be Jadavion Clowney for a similar reason to this whole tack thing. Clearly when the Browns like someone, they continue the pursuit and pro football focus really does like Jadavion Clowney at his literally non-existent sack numbers aside PFF likes him, which tends to correlate to the Browns liking somebody with the analytics department. And then we've seen Clowney and the Browns do the stand. So I think it really only would be one guy. It'd be Jadavion. I would not be surprised if it's post draft, the Browns are going to have options. They can slow play this. I mean, there's, there's guys like uh, Carlos Dunlap still out there. Um, Malvin Ingram. I already mentioned Clowney. There are some names where Justin Houston's another one where the Browns can just kind of wait and see how this plays out. Clowney would be the only one I think makes sense for his tie to the Browns earlier. PFF liking him, but this feels like McKinley and probably a rookie and they'll let this play out. And then who knows if it's not working out by mid season, Olivia Vernon's feeling healthy. Maybe all of a sudden he's back. This, this, this can be a a slow bake process uh, to eventually solidify that front four as the, the Browns likely build towards a playoff push when we're talking in, I don't know, November. All right. Those are two new Browns. We hope you know more about them now than you did before you started listening. Make sure you're catching every orange and Brown talk in this feed. Uh, A lot going on and we're covering it all. So that was fun. Thanks to you guys for all that work for Scott Patsko and Ellis Williams. I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on gotta watch the tape.